Mike Pompeo seems much more comfortable picking on Nikki Haley than he does taking mm-hmm. on Trump. Same as vice versa. Nikki Haley feels much more comfortable taking on Mike Pompeo than Trump. But ultimately, you can't win without taking on Trump. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, February 23rd. Today, Tara Palmieri joins me to talk about the 2024 Republican presidential primary. Lower tier candidates are already criticizing each other, but they don't seem willing yet to attack Donald Trump. So how long can that last? And will Trump just destroy them on a debate stage anyway? Tara and I discuss. And later, Teddy Schleifer stops by to talk about a new twist in the saga of Sam Bankman-Fried. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Tara Palmieri to talk about an interesting dilemma that's shaping up. If a bunch of candidates run against Donald Trump who aren't Donald Trump or even Ron DeSantis, how do you even run, (laughs) Tara? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're already starting to see this with Nikki Haley, who, you know, has been asked a few times uh, in interviews how she's going to separate herself from Trump. She always kind of dodges the question. I know it's early. She doesn't have to engage, but she just Mm -hmm. says it's time for a new generation. But both substantively, policy-wise, et cetera, and then stylistically, how do you compete with Donald Trump in a Republican primary? It's a good question. I also think it's interesting that she and Mike Pompeo have been sort of attacking each other. Pompeo says in his memoir that Nikki Haley plotted with Jared Kushner and Ivanka to become the vice president and oust Pence. Nikki called it, you know, lies and gossip. They're sort of attacking each other. She actually says he's trying to sell a book. (laughs) Then you have today, actually, Mike Pence criticized Ron DeSantis on CNBC. He said he thinks that the way that He tried to seize control of Disney's special tax district, that it was beyond the scope of what I, as a conservative, limited governor Republican, would do. So it was interesting. You also heard, you know, Chris Sununu was on the radio in New Hampshire. He took some pot shots at Ron DeSantis saying, you know, you too ordered businesses to shut down during COVID. It's just like a, a bit of jousting going on at the lower levels, right? Yeah. Sununu has been critical of Trump, and he's the one who's been the most outspoken and willing to take on Trump of all of the, you know, 2024 Mm -hmm. hopefuls. But it's just interesting to see them sort of coming after each other. And they're all probably like, they're people like in the 1%, picking on people in the 5%, maybe, if they're lucky. It's like Mike Pompeo seems much more comfortable picking on Nikki Haley than he does taking Mm -hmm. on Trump. Same as vice versa. Nikki Haley feels much more comfortable taking on Mike Pompeo than Trump. But ultimately, you can't win without taking on Trump. So uh, I don't know. Maybe this is like the derby where they're kind of like horses trying to position themselves within striking distance. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't really lead the pack from start to finish. So Everyone's trying just to at least be like striking distance. So during the final home stretch. So they sort of feel like let's kind of take a swipe at each other. I think Christy Nome also took a swipe at DeSantis. Oh, I missed that. What did she say? The governor of North Dakota, former member of Congress. So eight days ago, she was at a Trump-allied think tank in Washington. Mm -hmm. And she had some veiled shots at 
DeSantis. It was not like a direct attack, but she said, I did not lock my people down or mandate anything. In fact, we were the only state in the country that never ordered a single business or church to close. In fact, I didn't even define what an essential business was or non-essential business was. So she's sort of questioning DeSantis's COVID record because that's a big thing. You know, he was always saying the free state of Florida was open the whole time. <laughs> so she's sort of, without saying his name, taking a knock on his record on COVID. Listen, it's not she's not firing at him right away, but they're all kind of attacking each other, which is exactly what Trump wants. Totally. And I think your derby, your horse race analogy is a good one. Um, but yeah, there's no downside at this point to kind of like attacking one of the other single digit candidates or putative candidates. But there is downside to attacking Donald Trump. And I mean, I, I think you're right. Like with, and with Christy Nome too, whether she runs or not, she feels like she can at least criticize Ron DeSantis in a way that it doesn't feel like the, the others are willing to criticize Donald Trump at this point. And that brings up another point, which is none of these people have to admit that this is a two-person race at this point. Because it's not. Ron DeSantis hasn't declared for president. Ron DeSantis, if he does declare for president, both of us think that's what he's building toward. Like, he'll have the money, he will have the fame, but he's still got to prove himself. And so... You know, early on in this sort of era where you're jostling for position, they don't have to cede anything to Ron DeSantis right now. But what's interesting, though, is like down at the bottom, 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 like part of it could be with like Pompeo and Nikki, like maybe they both of them want to sell books and get on TV or whatever. Maybe it's just batting practice. Their advisors or them are just like, okay, let's get out there and like throw some punches, see how they land, see how the media responds to it. It's just it's really early. Only kind of people paying attention to it are probably donors, reporters like us, probably some hardcore activists in the early states. But yeah, it's going to be really tough. Let me ask you, though, like down the road. I mean, we saw in 2016, obviously, <laughs> how Trump was able to really just lash all of his opponents on stage, no matter how serious we all thought they were, um, and no matter how much of a benefit of doubt we gave them. Looking at the field, who among those people do you think can go head to head in a presidential debate with Donald Trump? I don't know. I think that's the big unknown. Anyone that I'm thinking of right now doesn't seem any more talented than the people he was up against in 2016, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and he was able to take them out. So I'm not sure. But then again, like they're kind of untested. Like I don't, I don't think Ron DeSantis was that impressive in his debates for governor. It's, it's hard to say because like Trump plays a totally different game than them. It just feels different. It just feels like, a, like they're not sure what to do about it. And I don't know. Are they all running for vice president? Like, is that a possibility or is that? No, no right. one's really running for vice president. What, what do you think, Peter? I don't know. I mean, we wrote about this in our um, powers that be newsletter that came out a few days ago. I don't I've just always kind of been skeptical of the idea that someone's running to be cabinet secretary. I remember back in 2016, like some bozo tweeted like, oh, Martin O'Malley's only running so he can become secretary of commerce or something. No one, no one thinks like that. <laughs> yeah, right. What they do think is I can vaguely raise my appeal, my reputation, my fame and Profile. whatever comes <laughs> of that. Yeah, exactly. That is an added benefit. So Nikki Haley, as I wrote in our, in our little ditty, I think she needs some money, honestly. Like she's not as cool and popular as she was a few years ago uh, when she was getting book deals and whatnot. And Mike Pompeo, like he's he's already had a cabinet position. Like 
I don't know, but maybe he, he really wants to be president. But as a fallback, like maybe he can get some TV contributor deal. You know, I, I just know. think there's like, yeah. it's just like tough. Like, I don't, I'm certain that Kamala Harris saw at some point back in 2018, 2019, that a possible byproduct of her running for president, if she lost, would be maybe mm. I can be vice president, you know, and that's a good bet in her case. It's not something ever to build a strategy around. I'll say that much. Right. And also, if you look at what happened with Trump and all the people he was up against in 2016, did any of them even make it into his cabinet? No. That's the thing. It's like, like if you run against him, he's not he's going to like, he's not gonna like you or like that. You know, maybe <laughs> like you some, saw a Trump loyalist text me the other day. And after reading, they were like, I read like your Antares piece really good. I think DeSantis should like not run and then cut a deal with Trump to become his like some cabinet secretary or something or other. Like that's a wild theory. Like, I don't know if you can keep Trump to his word in any way on anything like that. But the only thing that's like plausible out of all of that is if you run against him, he's not going to like you. You know, even if you work for him, like Nikki Haley, like, uh, you know, that doesn't guarantee anything. And so it's just, it seems likely, like Christy Noem, by the way, she seems like the one most likely to play for VP if it's not someone like Carrie Lake. Like you'd think Trump would love to pick a quote unquote telegenic woman to be his running mate. And, you know, if Christy Noem is out there not running for president, but doing Trump's spade work on the side and throwing darts at Ron DeSantis, she suddenly becomes like a plausible VP because she was with me the whole time. I love Christy. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. I agree. I agree. I don't know. It seems like this, there may not be a strategy right now. It might just be like, try not to lose your head. Although, you know, you talk to Trump people and they're like, do you really think DeSantis is going to run? And I say, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. They're like, he's so young. Why would he do it? Nobody thinks like that either. He's got one shot. Totally. I, you're so, I mean, this is, this is not a new saw at all, but like it's the whole Axelrod memo to Obama back in 2007 or six or whatever. It's like, you have to run now. Your time is now. You sit around and wait. Chris Christie should have run in 2012. Sat around and waited. Didn't pay off. But like Christie was like flirting with running in 2012, calling donors and whatnot. And then he like paused and like endorsed Mitt Romney and was like, Romney's the guy. And a lot of people think that was his moment and he missed it because he was he was at his peak back in like those like 2011 Tea Party days. And uh, and then he know. hugged Obama and it was over. <laughs> it was just right. over. Yeah, that, that's the thing. You can't predict what's going to happen later. There was Bridgegate. There was Superstorm Sandy when he hugged Obama. And then the party <laughs> changed. Yep. Christie signed a Dream Act in Jersey. Christie, you know, supported gun control. Christie's big believer in climate change. Like those things were like tolerated a little bit in, in Republican politics in the pre-Trump era and certainly in the press. Not anymore. <laughs> and so, like, things can leave you by. And Christy is still looking this time around at 2024. Peter, here's the question. Can you run forever? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ron Paul. Mike Huckabee ran a couple times. Rick How many Perry times does Joe times? Biden run for president? Three. He ran for three times. He ran in um, 88. John McCain ran a bunch of times before he won. Yeah, you can run. You just, I just think you diminish yourself if you run more than... Two times. Then again, Joe Biden was diminished. He ran for president in 2008. And then all of a sudden, Barack Obama looked around and said, who's a good VP? And it was Biden. And then no one thought he'd be president. And here he is. So there are no rules to this stuff. That's the number one number one takeaway <laughs> about running for president. Who knows what's going to happen? a lot of luck. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, Tara, thank you so much. When we come back, Teddy is here to talk SBF. 
Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Teddy Schleifer. Teddy, it's been hourly quiet on the Sam Bankman-Fried front in terms of the legal developments that we've been seeing in his case. But you had a great scoop this week on how the investigation against him might be expanding. What is the latest that you are hearing? So I'm hearing it from the uh, friendly confines of Puerto Rico, um, where I have not expensed a trip. But what is happening on the island territory is in recent weeks, federal investigators have trained their eyes on SBF's orbit in America's maybe a future 51st state. So a unit within the Department of Justice called the Public Integrity Section, which is sort of like a SWAT team um, that focuses on public corruption by usually public officials. This SWAT team has been investigating SBF before a grand jury that has been impaneled there in Puerto Rico. Now, this is sort of out there. Um, you know, it makes you wonder what's in Puerto Rico? What is FTX or Sam Beckman Fried or any of his political aides? What do they have to do with Puerto Rican affairs? And I'm going to, you know, preface this early in the podcast with there's a lot we don't know, but I know that there have been subpoenas. At least one subpoena has been issued in recent weeks that touches on this SBF orbit. And I know that. This elite SWAT team, the public integrity section, is probing the matter from Puerto Rico. And none of that has been previously reported, which does suggest that the campaign finance part of this investigation is expanding or is at least taking new twists and turns that um, we didn't previously know about. Because until the story on Tuesday, the only person that had been seen to be investigating SBF had been the Southern District of New York which you know indicted Sam and you know alleged that wealthy co-conspirators were helping him with his campaign finance violations back in December. So it's, it has been eerily quiet for the last two months, but it seems like things are afoot. Yeah, I'm so glad we're talking about this. I mean, th- this mysterious subplot of the entire FTX story is so interesting because obviously the central crime that's alleged here is the money that was stolen or absconded or what have you from customers and investors in FTX. But Let's talk about this political dimension that this subpoena might touch on. Mm. Sam Bankman-Fried, he dispersed tens, possibly hundreds of millions of dollars over the past several years to candidates and causes that he cared about, possibly sometimes for cynical or more opportunistic reasons. Sam is or was a Democrat, and he mostly gave to progressive causes. He's also claimed that he has directed millions of dollars to Republicans as well. Take me through where this connects to your reporting, because you had written that you have a suspicion that this subpoena Mm -hmm. may connect to sort of the, the, the mysterious vehicle for his GOP giving. So, Ben, the group you're referring to is called Defending America Together. This is an entity that made millions of dollars in political contributions to Republicans during the 2022 midterms, backing people like David McCormick in Pennsylvania and Mike Durant in Alabama. And it is a group that is tied to FTX. It is started by a guy named Eric Todd, who lives in Puerto Rico. Um, And this group, Defending America Together, I'm told, is referenced in this subpoena. There may be other things as part of the subpoena. Again, as I mentioned at the outset here, a lot of things we don't know. But I know that one of the things that is mentioned, at least, is this group. Maybe that explains kind of the, the Puerto Rico jurisdiction for the Department of Justice on this matter. Another possibility is maybe it has to do with kind of generic crypto wealth. There's lots of crypto people who have moved to Puerto Rico over the last couple of years. The government there has been very uh, accommodating of foreigners and or of other Americans who want to move their assets to Puerto Rico. 
FTX didn't really have many operations in Puerto Rico, so not really clear why they would be engaged there. But yes, the leading theory that I have and that other people close to this case have has to do with this kind of Republican outfit that at least was tied to FTX. I don't know if it was necessarily tied to Sam, but it was tied to FTX. I've been trying to squint to come up with what the ties between this guy Eric Todd and Sam Beckman-Fried or FTX possibly could be. I have a couple theories, probably not ready to broadcast, but there are a couple connections I've explored between the two two people, and we're trying to figure it out now. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that there are so many things we still don't know about this. And um, and this is part of the fourth wall breaking we're trying to do here at Puck and at this podcast and taking you behind the reporting, looking at it together sort of as it coalesces. The public integrity section got a shout yeah. out from the U.S. attorney when Sam was originally arrested and brought to New York. What is your understanding of that group's involvement in the case at that time? And, and do you think that has changed or evolved now that we're seeing evidence of the subpoena in Puerto Rico? My understanding is that it has changed. So this is too boring for, for the story, but there's lots of reasons why a U.S. attorney will consult the Department of Justice or Maine Justice, as it's referred to, when issuing indictments that have to do with public corruption charges like campaign finance violations. In fact, like it's part of the DOJ manual sometimes that it is required to consult with the public integrity unit before pressing their own charges. And there sort of is this, at times, adversarial relationships between U.S. attorney's offices and the Department of Justice, especially with SDNY, which has this rich history of independence. So Damien Williams, the uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, when he announced the indictment uh, of SBF, you know, he mentioned like 10 different agencies. He mentioned the SEC. I think he mentioned the FBI, of course. It's sort of this like perfunctory, you know, you know, thanking your wife for, you know, standing beside you when you ran for Congress or, you know, your kids or your parents have been these inspirations to you, blah, blah, blah. It didn't really mean anything. It didn't really, ba- you know, draw any attention. It's just good old politicking, essentially. And again, this is evolving. Um, but my understanding of the situation is that the public integrity unit is now playing a more investigative role, is now probing this matter themselves, probably with some coordination from SDNY. They're not going to run like a parallel investigation, which is sort of the term of art when DOJ and SEC are sort of doing simultaneous investigations. That would be referred to as parallel. Here, they're maybe more intermingled. I'm still learning all the details about the precise cooperating relationship, but it's clear to me at this point, I can confidently say that it is not only SDNY that is interested in this matter, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, you could say, wow, Maine Justice really cares about this case. That must mean that, you know, SBF and and his cronies really committed some serious violations if it's, you know, surpassing the knowledge and expertise of SDNY. But I actually know some defense counsel who are watching this case who welcome the public integrity unit's involvement. And that's because the people who work for public integrity have a lot of experience with campaign finance. They know how modern presidential politics works. They, they're based in Washington, not New York. The hope is that they might have more sophistication when it comes to assessing actual criminality and wouldn't take things at face value as much as SDNY might. A lot of the SPF orbit right now thinks they're being targeted for doing things that every advocacy group does in Washington, like you know, paying high salaries and expecting a lot of those salaries to be paid back out in campaign donations. That is how lots of lobbyists do their business. Or coordinating political contributions and you know, using the corporate checkbook to bolster 
you know, the founder's personal contributions. Like that sort of stuff is very common in Washington, very common in lobbying. And I think some people in SBF's orbit hope that public integrity might have a bit more compassion for kind of basic Washington lobbying and, and wouldn't treat them as these exceptional influence peddlers that I think they think SDNY seems to be pegging them as. Right. So these are people who who took FTX money, who moved it around, who are worried that the political dimension of this could snowball and that they could become sort of casualties of this broader case or that they'll in some way get caught in the crossfire. Exactly. Well, Teddy, like you said, there's so many unknowns in this case. It's totally fascinating. And I'm glad you've been following it. Um, we're going to have to get that trip expense to Puerto Rico so you can um, do some shoe leather reporting. Sure thing. Get me working hard. <laughs> Thanks, Teddy. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.